Episode 10 of the Cell Shows podcast is Joseph Valente. He's the former winner of The Apprentice on the BBC. He's the former CEO of Impragas and now the CEO of Trade Mastermind. We talk about Joe's sales process, how he built the empire that was Impragas. We talk about how he selected the board after he bought back his shares from Alan Sugar. We talk about his three biggest failures in business and how you can learn from them. We touch on how he deals with negativity, both in the press and in the corporate world. And we also get Joe to answer the sales change five questions. There's loads of knowledge in this episode. It's a really big one. It's our 10th episode. I hope you enjoy it. Remember, visit the website. It's www.saleschange.co.uk. Visit the episode page, sign up to the newsletter, and leave me a comment on your podcast platforms. Enjoy this episode. Joseph, welcome to the Sales Change Podcast. How are you doing, my friend? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah, really good. Thank you for having me on. Excited to um, share some value with your audience. How are you coping with the coronavirus and the, the lockdown period? Um, it's been quite a strange one, to be honest. I feel like I'm going in peaks and troughs of motivation and then a bit of a slump and then motivated again and then a slump. But now I'm at the top of the curve again and I'm ready to take over the world. So I've um, refocused my business and strategy and I'm going to ride the, ride the wave as long as it stays high. So what are you focusing on right now? So, yeah, so I'm focusing on um, taking our business online at the moment. I launched a, um events business the same day that they stopped mass gatherings, <laughs> which ended up being, it, it ended up being a disaster, but a success at the same time. Not many people showed up, but we had a great sales conversion of courses, which was excellent. So we're actually just transferring that now online. Uh, my focus is about adding as much value to customers in the home as possible or to high-earning professionals slash business people. So we're putting together a whole host of courses that will go on to ClickFunnels, and, and that's where we're at. Cool, cool. And that's focusing on how, to they, how they grow their business, is it? Um, so we're going to be doing, funnily enough, a podcast training course. We're going to turn how your expertise into coaching because um, I recently sold my company and built a coaching academy in the construction industry very quickly on supporting small businesses. So using those transferable skills, how to write a book, you know, everything that people want to do in the home, but they wouldn't usually have the time to do, but now they're sat around twiddling their thumbs. But it's about creating automated online courses that are going to be hopefully quite timeless and create some good money without a lot of manual intervention and add a lot of value to people in their home. So is this an idea that's come from your brain or is it sort of a culmination of years of experience and you're just putting it all together? To be able to put it together is the years of experience. But I never wanted to, when I had Impregas, I always wanted to go into personal development. After The Apprentice, it was like my natural, it, was my, it fits my personality way better than being a CEO of a boiler installation company. So <laughs> it was like my natural line of progression and you know, I'm, I'm very blessed that I've got the opportunity to move into the space. And I think we can add a lot, a lot of value. So what do, how, do you, how do you think people see you when you're, when you're up there talking? How do you want people to see you and how do you think they see you? High energy, motivating, inspiring, unwavering self-belief. I think one thing that I, I, I'm lucky to have is an unwavering, insane, obsessed, self-belief that whatever I say I can do I can do um, and that for me is something that I want to use to empower people my favorite quote is whatever the mind can conceive and believe the mind can achieve and I do believe the reason most people don't achieve is because they don't believe that they can do it yeah yeah totally totally where does that drive come from Joseph 
Uh, the drive comes from my upbringing, really. We came from quite a poor background. My mum worked three jobs. My dad was an alcoholic and didn't work. Um, and there was that drive to um, change my stars, change my circumstances, create a different life for my family in the future. And I never, ever wanted to live how we lived growing up. So I think that was that's always been my driving force behind my success. And then, you know, I, I had quite a challenging young adulthood when my dad left when I was 13. And then I was expelled from school when I was 15. And, you know, I was pretty much on my own. I moved, let moved, I got kicked out of my house when I was 17. Yeah, um, yeah. So I was kind of on my own for a, a long period of time where I had to convince myself that, you know, I was going to do it despite what anybody said, um, you know, I was going to achieve it. So that gave me that that almost I'm going to prove a point drive, if that makes sense. Because you could have quite easily gone down the other route, couldn't you? You could have just thought, ah, fuck this, I'm going to drink, I'm going to just waste away my mm. life. Do you know what it was? And this is why I'm so lucky. And I, I do believe this is why a lot of people aren't able to break the cycle is because I had a very successful uncle. So you imagine you're brought, in a, brought up on a council estate. I wasn't brought up in a council estate, but we were born in a crappy little terraced house and, but in, in a little village. But we, you imagine you're born up on a council estate. Everyone around you is on the dole. And I'm not saying everyone is. I'm not stereotyping them. But everyone's on the dole or they're alcoholics or they're, you know, they're, they're not motivated. They don't want to succeed. That's like your circumstance. And that's all you see. So every yeah, day yeah. you don't think you can break away from that. And then you see successful people, celebrities, entrepreneurs, business people. Oh, it's okay for them. You know, they've got some special talent or they had a silver spoon in their mouth or you make all these excuses. But I was lucky to have a very successful uncle that used to come once or twice a year. He'd turn up in a brand new suit, brand new BMW, Mercedes. In the 90s, he had a car phone with a little cord on it. And I was able to <laughs> yeah. see somebody that I knew that was related to me that had wealth. So I thought, how can my dad have this? And how can my uncle have this? But yet they're both connected to me. And then at that point, I decided that that was the person that I wanted to become not this person. And that allowed me to see a different um, future. And I think that a lot of people don't have that. Um, so, you know, I was lucky to be able to break the cycle, really, which is important. Where did the niche sort of, of Impregas come from? Because you, you could have gone into any business. Why mm -hmm. Impregas and why start in a van and, and work your way up? The reason I went into plumbing was because it was all I knew. When I was expelled from school, I went and worked with a local plumber for, for free for a year before I went to college at 15 and um, I did an apprenticeship and then qualified plumber and then qualified gas engineer so I, I was quite successful in it at very early age I was I was already earning high and I'd been in it for four or five years by the time I was 20 so I knew the industry very very well so it was easy for me to go right I can use this now and go and sell it um and start making better money for myself. But, you know, the the reason I chose to uh, to build Infragas was because I saw a very traditional industry that hadn't been changed in such a long time where everybody was waiting for the phone to ring, service industry, and I felt that I could put a sales spin on it, add real value, create a product from service industry or plumbing and proactively sell it to customers. So that was what I decided to do. Infragas the name and the reason I chose that was because Impra means Impravio, which is entrepreneur and improvising Latin. That's where that name comes from. Did you get kickback from like the industry as itself? Because you were shaking up a little bit. 
I mean, in the early days, like I was, I was in Peterborough where I started, and within within three years, I conquered the property management. This is prior to the apprentice. This is twenty two to twenty five. Yeah. Um, I'd conquered the property management market. We had about three thousand homes on contract. I had five or six plumbers in vans working for me. You know, I was still a young guy, um, and we just went in and absolutely dominated. You know, we changed the way that people saw how plumbing and reactive maintenance should be done. We were smart. We were on time. We our customer service was exceptional. You know, I'd do whatever the customers needed from us, and you know that really that really um, rocked the complacency of the people that were just doing it, doing it, doing it like it had always been done. But post-apprentice, oh, yeah, blimey, I, I, I shuck up a massive storm and built a um, loyal fan base and a loyal hate base as well at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> How do you deal with that negativity, Joe? I'd like to say I 100% bash it down. I'd say 98% I don't give a fuck. So that kind of helps. But the 2%, it does get to me a little bit sometimes, but you just got to block it out. The thing is, you're not going to change the world without getting criticism. And you can't go onto a show and you can't go and put yourself on the front line or in the limelight and expect people to not love you and hate you. So it goes with the territory. You know, I always, I'm always quite realistic with myself and say, well, you entered into it knowing what the potentials were. So... You know, you can't cry about it because somebody's calling you a wanker on Twitter, you know, or whatever <laughs> it is. So you just have to rock and roll with it and keep going and just drown out the noise. See, I, I went for The Apprentice maybe 12, 13 years ago. And this is back when Alan Sugar would set you up in his company rather than back your own. Yeah. And I think I was I went through to the process when Stuart Baggs was on the um, on the on the series. And oh, nice. Yeah, the, uh, I got through. So the process was when I went on, you stood in a room in a line of about 10, 20 people, had to step forward and give a little spiel about yourself. Then you went into another mm -hmm. room and had to speak to a producer. Then you went into another room and had to speak to somebody else. What was the process for you? So that was the first day. And that was yeah. pretty much the same format. Yeah. And then after that, you know, without giving too much away, you've got to <laughs> yeah. give a little bit. And then after that, you go back again. And then... So the day that I was there, on the day that you were describing, there was about 6,000 people there. And then I think about 1,000 got through from that day. And then the next day we went and they were having you in rooms of this time of about 50 people. And there was all cameras lined up. And there was about 50 people all in this massive room. And you were there all day. And um, they were making you do crazy things like, You'd all be just chatting, and then they'd be like, "Right, everybody, you've got thirty seconds. Line yourselves up in the um, order of the best looking in the room." Right, <laughs> and then it was like it was absolutely crazy. I mean, I remember it, and I was twenty twenty five at the time. And you know, look, you got to play the game, right? With anything you enter into in life, you got to know what they want from you. So I'm fighting my way to get to the front. I'm like, move out the way. I'm the best looking in the room. Um, you know, not, not that I thought that I was. And I remember fighting with this lady from Hong Kong who was once Miss Hong Kong. She was like, I'm way better looking than you. I was like, I'm winning this show. Get out of the way. And then we were causing a storm at the front. And then I remember this lady in the middle. She put herself like three quarters back in like just lined up and just sort of stood there. She was like, oh my God, who do you think you are putting yourself to the front? I said, listen, right? I'm trying to win this show. You standing three quarters back ain't going to get you noticed. Don't you understand what the game is here? This isn't real life. So, yeah. you know, she took offense to the fact that I was pushing to the front, but I knew what they wanted. And 
you know, I think, you know, it's important to... Everyone always says that. Well, oh, do you really think... Oh, I used to say I want to be like Hugh Hefner. I think I'm the godfather of business. That was my spiel on The Apprentice. And people said, you really think you're godfather of business? Uh, yeah, of I remember not, that. But you've got to say these things to stand out, right? You you know the game, right? Yeah, yeah. How did The, how did the Apprentice change your perception of business? Because obviously you had a successful business before, but then afterwards, what was your perception of business afterwards? Because you had Alan Sugar's input. Yeah, well, I remember that. I think, you know, and one reason I started my coaching academy as one of the businesses I'm doing at the moment in construction is plumbers start plumbing businesses, electricians start electrical businesses, builders build houses. But, and this is the same for many industries. You're good at it and you start, you're good at the job, so you start the business. Who teaches you how to run a business? Yeah, no right, nobody. And you're winging it. You're winging it. I don't care what anybody says. You're winging it. You see your accountant once a year. You, you spend money on advertising. You try this. You try that. You get um, HR. Con- like, all the things that you just try to learn as you go. When I went into business and had a billionaire business partner at the age of 25, so I went from no no one to having to go and sit in a boardroom with you know five or six of his people and him and go through management accounts and board packs and create presentations. You know, it was an absolutely insane transition. I remember the first meeting that I went into. I used to see my accountant once a year. I remember the first meeting I went into and we had to pull out monthly management accounts. I couldn't re- properly read a profit and loss or a balance sheet. I didn't really know what they were. You know, <laughs> I just go and see the accountant and say, right, you've made money this year. Excellent. Great. And then you go back and do the work. So I remember feeling um, a bit of an idiot, right? And I, I can blag my way through a lot of stuff. So I managed to get through the board meeting and I vowed to myself, never again am I going to go to a board meeting and not know what I'm talking about. So then I decided to become a master of financials and just start to take a much more, I start to take a, a look at business, like how it should be properly run, right? Not by just somebody that's good at the job organizing plumbers, which is kind of what I was. Um, and then by the time I left there, I had 150 people working for me. Um, I'd become a CEO where we were running a national business. It was doing a million pound in sales a month. So it was a huge transition, you know, and I was able to go from a plumber to a businessman in a very short period of time. Uh, you know, and that's the best apprenticeship anybody could have asked for. Or, you know, you can't put a price tag on what I was able to learn. So you had those people around you. How Did, did you pick that team or did the, was that handpicked for you yeah lord sugar's people they were his people so you had the, his fd you had their assistant fd you had the accountant and you had the company secretary there so it was kind of like lord sugar's team versus joe it was <laughs> board, yeah. boardroom boardrooms they uh, are a funny thing yeah, yeah i, I created are. a board after i bought bought lord sugar out and I, I put my own board in and my own non-exec directors and sold some shares and had some small shareholders and, you know, you, you get people, you get teams in there and people that back each other. And then it just becomes boardroom politics. And it's very, very strange. And, you know, I'm I'm very short, sharp. This is what we come to do. This is what we need to talk about. Have you say what you need to say. Um, and then we're going to all get on to the mission. Like the reason we're all here is to contribute to the greater good. I don't want to hear your bullshit or I don't want to hear point scoring, you know. And I did feel like a lot of time. Um, in Lord Sugar's team, there were the, especially the lower level ones in that board meeting, we're trying to score points with them. And that we were partners, right? They yeah, guys yeah. were paid by me and him. So like trying to score points on me that I'd messed up or done something wrong. I was like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, I don't like that. That really puts my back up. So yeah, I learned a lot about boardroom etiquette anyway, which is fantastic. 
during that boardroom process, did you ever feel like you had imposter syndrome, like you shouldn't be there? Or was it always the self-confident Joe that was there? It's kind of like you find yourself on a, you, you find yourself riding a wave and you just ride it. You yeah. know, but you do, I remember when I was pulling up and, you know, you're like, because cause I, I used to, I used to, I knew that I was going to win that show, right? There was nothing that was going to stop me from knowing that I was going to win that show. I was so confident, you know, and then when it actually happened, I'm like, holy shit, this has actually happened. Like, I'm not crazy. I yeah. can pull this stuff off. So it was a bit mental to be seeing him and being around him and, you know, just like, is this real? Is it an illusion? What is actually, how has life come to this? But it was so, so cool, you know, and you just got to just ride the buzz, man. Just ride the buzz and, you know, just keep attracting the positivity from, from the environment. So when you got the opportunity to pick your own team and have your board around you, how did you go about picking those? Was it people you knew? Was it word of mouth? Or was it, how did you do it? So I suppose I, I, I can't, you know, I, when I put the second board in place, I didn't get to pick the first one, but when I put the second board in place, still I was 27, 28, maybe still quite naive in, I, I'd never put one in place before. It was the first time I'd done it. So you kind of pick people, you know, you, whenever you're putting something in, it's got to be about value, not necessarily about finance. Totally. Um, but those those two things do intertwine. Um, so, you know, going for somebody just putting in money can always be very challenging if they're not on the same vision or they're looking um, to have the same end goal or on the same mission. So I tried to find people that add value specifically. So I put one person in that was had a big recurring revenue model that we wanted to bring into Infragas. I brought somebody in that was retired and they were, uh, they'd come from a big corporate background to ensure that we still had the right culture and the right compliance and the right regulation and check and balance and so on. And I respected them both. Uh, that was key. And for, for a, a long time, it was good. And a little bit later after that, I was very, very lucky to um, have the former managing director of British Gas contact me via LinkedIn. He was 62 or three, and he ran their business at 540 million a year and 140,000 installations a year. And we were doing, at that time, probably half a million in sales a month. And he contacted me and said, Joe, I've been watching you for a few years now. Um, I think I can have value. I'm retired. I'm pretty bored. I would like to get involved with you and come and join your company and, and do some bits. So I brought him on, which was crazy. You know, I learned so much from the guy. He was a really great guy. Paid him a lot of money, but he really helped us grow from three to 10 million in a year. He then brought wow. in a former operations director from British Gas. So I kind of bought the best. You know, I had the best around me in Impra delivering, you know, the old guys that had been there and done it, you know, and I thought, we've created something here that we ain't going to lose. You know, I've got the energy and these guys have been there and done it. And I know my stuff, but they know more. So we're going to absolutely take over. Um, so I, I created quite a power team, to be honest. And then we had the former sales, one of the sales, top sales guys at British Gas, like say, um, senior sales managers had come in um, and was part of it. So... Yeah, I'd created a really good board towards the end. So what was your sales process? You brought these senior salespeople in. Was that cold calling? Was it SEO advertising? Was it social media? How did you get the name out there? Obviously, with, with The Apprentice, that helped. But what was your, after mm. that uh, euphoria had died down, what was the process of getting out and, and getting knocking on these doors? So, so as soon as Sugar invested, we were still working in the property maintenance sector. And it was small ticket items, 50 to 60, 70 pound call outs. Um, and I wanted to expand nationally. There wasn't enough margin in it. 
there wasn't the the order values weren't high enough. So yeah. in 2016, in August, I decided to go after the installation market where there was a million boilers installed a month. British Gas did 100,000 of those. And the rest was one-man bands. No one had disrupted it for so long. But it meant that there was a high-ticket item to a level of 2,500 average order value, solid margin, huge marketplace, and one we could easily expand into nationally. So I quit the maintenance model, and we flipped it and changed it into an installation business. And what that meant was that I had to start to build a, a direct sales team, which I'd never done. But it was all the model that we had was very simple. Lead generation, so people that want boiler quotations. Um, so, you know, we would send out a sales rep to go and sit in the home, do a survey, do a presentation, and then give the customer a price. If we sold it, we'd then send an installer in that would install yep. it, job done. That was the only thing we did. So lead gen, sales, installation, get paid. And that meant that because we only had one item, we were one product really, we were able to become a Michelin star boiler installation business to scale very quickly. So I basically recruit, I, I lead generated in every area. We did it by buying leads from lead generating companies where you could buy a lead for 30 quid. You know, your conversion rate was 25 to 30%. Um, so you spent 120 quid, you got two and a half thousand out. Every 120 quid you put in, you got two and a half thousand out. And it was, as long as there was enough leads to buy in each area, we were able to scale it up. So I'd go, right, okay, we start in Cambridgeshire. I'd say, right, can I generate leads in Birmingham? Speak to your lead generation companies and so on. Yeah, we can give you 100 leads a month. Well, that was maximum for my sales guy anyway. So I'd then employ a sales guy, self-employed or employed, depending on the quality. I'd then employ a self-employed, an employee, an engineer, self-employed or employed. And then we'd launch Birmingham. And then I'd replicate that in London. And then I'd replicate that in Bristol. And then Scotland and then Cardiff. And then... When I left, I had 30 field sales reps wow, yeah, doing yeah. two and a half thousand quotes a month, converting at about 22%, 500 installations a month nationally. So I built a power team in about two and a half years while <laughs> building the company as well, because I was kind of sales director and CEO. And so, yeah, that's how, that's how we built our business. That's what I was going to ask. Did you keep in contact with all the numbers all the time? Or as a CEO, did you have to take a step back and let others do it for you? I mean, every all, the, my job when I left that business was just to look at numbers every day. It was just report after report after report. Yeah. The lead yeah. sales, conversions, finances, cash flow, debtors, you know, um, installations. Every, it was just. You've got all, to be in love with the detail, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. It was just every day. It was just numbers, numbers, numbers. It was looking at numbers and dealing with shit. Looking at numbers and dealing with shit. Yeah, I think yeah. Elon Musk says, when you're the CEO, all you do every single day is spend your time doing the stuff that everybody else can't fix, uh, <laughs> basically. <laughs> if, you, if it's brought to your table, it's because the, 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 rest, the rest of them have given up and they can't do it. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, I look back now and I think, you know, it was exciting. I enjoyed it. But at the same time, I'm a creator. So I think, you know, do I want to do I want to be the guy that sits in a, behind a desk and is just managing numbers day in, day out? Not necessarily. So, you know, I, it, it has made me reflect on, on who I want to be for the next 10 years and, you know, what I want to deliver. And if you look at, like, just looking at Branson, for example, I mean, he's a creator. He goes in, he creates, puts things together, puts the people in, moves to the next. You know, I, I like I, I quite like that for um, my next foreseeable future because I love to create. 
and I don't like to, I don't want to say I don't like the follow through, but I like to create the and detail. do the exciting bit and get the people in. And then I like, to, and that's what, but that's what makes me buzz. So people will look at you and think, Joseph Valente is an overnight success. What failures have you, let's say the top three failures that you've made over the last 10 years, what would they be so that people can take that away and learn? Top three failures, not getting a business mentor sooner. Yeah. Um, the first three years, I wasted so much money. Like, because I, I, I was the thing. What I, I used to do was fire from the hip. You know, I'd be like, right, we're starting a call center. Right, we're doing this. Right, <laughs> we're doing that. Right, I'm going to advertise here. You know, and then I always believed that you know, expanding your business is about starting a new business, adding a new service. And then you did that before the one that you were doing was you had even come to fruition. So you know, getting a mentor to guide me much sooner would have saved me. A substantial amount of money. What else? It's a tough question, isn't it? No one looks at the failures. <laughs> yeah. One thing I moved. I moved to London. I moved to London and had to move back before my business was ready for me to be away from head office, which wasn't ideal. So I mean, I know that's a bit of a minor one, but don't move too soon. I wanted to live in London after The Apprentice, and I had and, and I moved there, and then I was reverse commuting, and it was a nightmare. So. Yeah, I moved too soon. I could help you out the last one, and that was probably learning the numbers quicker. Yeah, learning the numbers quicker. Yeah, learning the numbers would have definitely helped. So what we do on every single podcast, Joe, is at the end, we ask the five same questions, and I'm going to ask the same five to you. So the yeah. first one is, which leader do you look up to the most? People aren't going to like me for this one necessarily, but I do like Trump a lot. Do you? Post-presidential. Post-presidential. I mean, president politics always brings in bullshit, but Trump, you know, I, I admired his book, The Art of the Deal, and you know that he was he was a respected businessman prior to the presidential. So, yeah, I, I like his presence, I like his power, I like his confidence. If he wants to say something, he um, he will say it, regardless of what anybody thinks. And you have to admire that, whether you agree with what he says or not. I like his resilience. You know, imagine living a day in the life of him. The ninety-eight percent of the media slaughtering you on a daily basis. Like to be able to get up and deal with that every single yeah. day means that you're strong, right? You know, yeah, you, you think talk about online bullying and trolling. That guy gets destroyed, and he still walks out of there like there's nothing. Um, nothing's going to challenge him. And the other thing, you know, once again, and I said this on an interview, BBC Question Time, when I was on there. And I said, you know, regardless of what you think about Trump, you have to admire his journey to president, to being a coming president. He said he was going to do it and he delivered. That should be inspirational. And some people hated me for saying that. But, you know, how can you not? He said he was going to become president and he delivered. That is pretty damn special. And if you look back on some of his really old interviews, he's been saying it for so long, for so, yeah. so long. So, yeah, Trump, I'd say at the moment. What did you want to be when you grew up? Rich. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> rich. Rich. It was, you know, rich. You know, you can say, I, I mean, I was obsessed with wrestling for a very long time. I wanted to be a WWF wrestler. You haven't got the build for that, Joe, have you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, I think uh, Ray Mysterio Jr. would probably be my, um, my competitor. So, uh, yeah, I, I think rich or a wrestler. <laughs> what would be the worst job that you could ever do and why? Well, at 15, I was scraping poo off the back of toilets and as an apprentice plumber. So, you know, I had a pretty bad job doing that nice. <laughs> um, for 20 quid a day. They were the types of jobs we had to do. 
because the boss didn't want to do them. So, you know, if, if, if I've done that, I'll pretty much do anything. Listen, I'm not precious. If I have to get my hands dirty, I, I will never ask anybody to do anything that I'm not prepared to do myself. I think I know the answer to this question already, but which of the social media networks, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn, would you advise for business people to go into and why? Or what's your favorite and why? Uh, I think when you define business people, it has to be defined in the industry. So um, it not necessarily like, you know, influencers now are business people and clothing brands and stuff like that. They ain't going to get traction on LinkedIn, but they'll get it on Insta. And then, you know, if you're on LinkedIn and you want to you wanna be much more corporate and advertise that way, then go B2B, you go that way, I suppose. So I, I just recommend finding the platform that most best suits your business and if you want to do it personally, which most, which best suits your attitude. I'm much more of Joseph, the non-business figure on Insta than I am when I post on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. Because it's wearing different hats for different different situations, right? Is your go-to then LinkedIn? At the minute, my go-to is none of them because I just can't stand what I'm reading on there every <laughs> single day. I've took like two weeks off and I'm, I keep trying to get started again and then I'm reading it and I'm just like, oh my God, I can't keep reading all this negativity. So I try to spread it evenly. I probably would say that LinkedIn and Instagram are my two favorites at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And the last question is, what was the last book that you read? The last book that I read um, was Elon Musk. I'm trying to think of what the title of it was. And I don't read them, by the way. I Actually, no, that's a lie. The last one that I read was um, Russell Brunson, Expert Secrets. Uh, yeah, it's a good book. And, that, good. and that was about selling courses online. But I'm an audio man. I don't read. That's why, that's why you're on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, we had to see him, if we had to see him read to each other, I wouldn't have been on it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Thanks very much for your time. Excellent. Cheers, buddy. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't go anywhere yet. Julio, tell people where they can get more information. If you like the podcast, go visit saleschange.co.uk. That's good, but you said dot, do, dot. Saleschange.co.uk. Why don't you head? No, 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 no. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Go to saleschange.co.uk and <laughs> saleschange.co.uk and subscribe to our incredible newsletter. Thanks for listening.